Hi, and welcome to episode 146 of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I'm Maria Stolger, and I'm excited to be bringing you a special episode this week. It's with my first ever guest on the podcast, Francis Jarko better known to his friends as Frank, who has a magnificent show now on at Australian Galleries in Sydney. It's called Recent Works, Pictures at an Exhibition, Apologies to Mussorgsky. It's a combination of recent paintings, but also major works from the 80s and 90s, including his large multi-figured portrait, which won the Archibald in 1994. It's now on and continues until the 2nd of July, 2023. I met Frank at the gallery and we walked around talking about several paintings and I videoed our conversation and you can watch an edited version of this episode on YouTube. You'll find a link in the show notes, but you can hear the full conversation here where I describe all the works and I've included images of the paintings on the website talkingwithpainters.com. If you're in Sydney, though, I recommend you see this show in person if you're interested at all in contemporary realist paintings. And Australian Galleries is in a fabulous arts precinct in Paddington where you'll find seven other fantastic commercial galleries, which are all within about 200 metres of each other. So well worth an art hopping trip. Frank is an acclaimed Sydney painter. Apart from the Archie, he's won the Percival Portrait Painting Prize as well as others and has been a People's Choice winner in the Salon des Refusés. He's also well known among many artists in Sydney as a teacher at Julian Ashton Art School where he passed on to students his knowledge of oil painting techniques and approaches to painting, especially the figure and still life. Many of those students themselves have gone on to make paintings which have hung in the Archibald Prize, and I can think of at least three who are finalists in this year's exhibition. Frank no longer teaches, he's more focused on his painting these days, but I was one of his students back in the early 2010s, and when I had the idea for this podcast, he was the first person I thought of to interview, and I'm very grateful that he said yes. So that was episode one, where we talked about his life and how he became an artist, and I've put a link to that in the show notes. So join me now in taking a stroll around the show. It's been a few years in the making and it, it just happened that I, I, I've kept a lot of these paintings from the 80s and 90s and some of the major works I just couldn't part with them. And, um, you know, a lot of you, a lot of people know you from your, your latest work, from the latest few shows, or they know you from one painting, such as the Archibald painting. So I thought this is a good way to see, you know, where I'm coming from, you know, from the 80s and 90s. Um, and don't forget there's a 20-year gap in between that period and, and the recent paintings. Um, that's just interesting for me. I mean, there's, there's a lot of the props that I've used then. I'm looking now at, at this, my Archibald painting and a lot of the themes have still come through. Um, it's still the very strong theme of music. I can see there's the, my, the, the, the puffer that my father had in the barber shop. There's the musical instruments, the, the tapestries, you know, and my grandmother even. I've painted her a number of times. Yeah, it's a fabulous painting. I should mention it's called Homage to John Reichardt, and it's and John Reichardt and his partner on the left sort of side of the of the canvas, uh, they're cellists. Yes. And um, and there are three other figures in the in the work, and it is an absolute yeah. You know, those tapestries and hanging in the background, they're so ornate and decorative. They're absolutely beautiful. But you know this this painting won the Archibald Prize in nineteen ninety four. Yes. 
But it caused a bit of a stir, didn't it? Well, it, it, yeah, it did. <laughs> I'm not really sure why, but uh, it was just a different time. You know, people were uh, much more critical, I think. Um, prior to this, I, I just found it very difficult to get an exhibition in Sydney. I went to various galleries, even in Melbourne, and I found that they just didn't want to show my work. And I had one of those, you know, despondent sort of times where you just, well, this is it. I'm going to do what I want to do. So I just did this big painting. I set it all up. And, um, and I'm a, an amateur pianist, as you know. And we, um, I used to play music with John Reichardt, chamber music with John and with other people. And I just did this big sort of large genre, large sort of group portrait. And what happened was that John passed away just before the painting was finished. So that's why I called him homage to John Reichardt. Mm. And he seemed to get a lot of the attention. I'm, I'm not sure why people, well, they criticised it for various reasons. I think there was a lot of politics as usual going on. Um, I think some people just objected that it was uh, not a single portrait of someone, you know, the idea of a definition of a portrait mm, uh, mm. was more of a genre piece. I suppose he's not looking at the viewer. He's I not. suppose his partner, is, his face is more prominent than his. But I don't think that yes. should make any difference. Well, it's, if, if you look at paintings that have been hung and paintings that have won since then, I mean, you know, people have done all sorts of abstract and, and yeah. caricatured portraits. And something right. with this, they became very, very pinicky with the rules, you know. So, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, but, uh, it's, it's an absolutely brilliant painting, but I'm sure, you. you know, I know it was very uh, admired at the time as well. But, you know... Um, your grandmother's also in it, which is really interesting because um, she appears in a few of your paintings. And yes, we're going to talk yes. about another one in a second. Yeah. Um, but was she happy to, to pose oh, for you? Oh, she loved it. Yes, I was very lucky. My grandmother and my mother used to sit for me all the time. Yeah. You know, in between meals. Because <laughs> <laughs> originally I had a studio at, at home and then later on I'd bring them over to, to my studio other studio and and they would just love sitting there and you know they would tell their old stories Um, and they were great subjects and did you always paint from life like all these portraits we're looking at here in this room all the new works yeah they're all painted from life i had to do studies because this is painted in a particular technique an egg emulsion technique and it's very hard to change the composition so i have i have a full-scale drawing of this and i worked out the composition quite carefully and uh, built it up in this egg emulsion technique. Can you tell me a bit about that egg emulsion technique? Because I know it's quite laborious. It is very laborious. There's a a number of paintings here which which show this technique. If you go up close, it's it's basically a a glazing technique and an egg emulsion. An emulsion is just a water and an oil mixed together physically, not chemically combined. Basically, it means that you can use it as a water-based medium or as an oil-based medium. So you can alternate the oil and the water so you can get various layers of, of glazes. So um, that's how it's different to just a, like a normal glazing. Normal glazing is just can be too rich in oil and it's, uh, it's just too difficult to sort of, the, the surface is not porous enough to paint. Ah, so there's no egg in it? Oh yes, there is egg. Oh, there is oh egg. Yes, yes, egg emulsion. Oh, okay, so did you buy that? No, I made it. I studied the technique in Vienna in the late 70s. I met an artist there whose work I liked and she taught me this technique. It does, it's different to egg tempera that the icon painters and early Renaissance painters used. That's just egg yolk with water. This is egg yolk mixed with linseed oil and dharma varnish. Yes, and you alternate it. It's, it's a very complicated technique. I, um, and did it dry quickly? 
It can dry quickly, yes, because the temper does dry quickly. Yes. And so what you do is you put a ground and then that oil emulsion technique was just in white, wasn't it? Yes, you mix the, you mix the titanium white pigment, you mix that with the egg emulsion and, and you, you create a paint, a white paint, and you just layer that, you crosshatch that over the um, underpainting, the brown underpainting. So you end up with like a white ghost-like image of optical greys, they call them. And when that's dry, then you can glaze with very thin oil paints over that. Ah, and you do it like a square at a time. Yeah, if you look closely, a lot of these paintings, especially, especially some of the smaller ones, you'll see the little squares hatching. It's so interesting. And so I presume that the glazes that you use must be all transparent. Transparent, yes. And you build it up. And would you ever go into it again Yes, afterwards? you can. That's the beauty of the egg emulsion. You can, and when that's dry, or even while the glaze is wet, you can always work into it with the egg emulsion again, with mm -hmm. the pigment which makes it dry faster. So you can have various colours. And that's one other difference with traditional glazing as well, yes, is that you yes, can't yes. do that as easily. Well, you're limited with the traditional glazing because the paint just becomes too rich. It's like, it's like trying to paint on glass. The glass isn't porous enough. It doesn't accept the glaze. It just bubbles up. Um, but with this, you can keep the, the paint lean. Mm. The egg emulsion makes it lean because it's water-based. Mm. And then you can put the oil on top of that. Oh, that's interesting. Yes. And, but you don't do, you, you haven't been painting like that with no, that? No, it's very hard. It's really very hard. Because um, I, I, I just, um, I didn't want to be too constrained to the composition. I wanted to just let the composition come out more naturally. Mm -hmm. And I started, even in this painting, if you have a look at the light areas, it's, you can see that I've started to use impasto, and, and a lot of that's painted with a palette knife. The, the glazing is sort of more effective in the darks. Because yes. you can have more, more layers of glazes. Yeah, and there's so many musical instruments in this. I just love it. Well, let's talking about musical instruments, let's talk about this next painting that's on the left. I love this painting because it's got the piano in it, which is so yes, important yes, to you in yes. your life. Um, and is that like a Vermeer study? That is, a that is a copy of the Vermeer. This is a very early painting. It's probably the first major painting of mine in my old studio in my parents' house. And it's I, called I, The Piano, by the, the way, piano, 1984. Right. And um, yes, that was the old piano that by my father was a, a, a musician. He was a bit of a frustrated musician. And um, he used to play the piano. And it's, I've got the map that, that I've had for years. And I think you can see there's a very strong Vermeer influence coming through. Yeah. And also very early Renaissance. I've always loved the early Renaissance. I love that sense of geometry that they've had in their paintings. Well, what is it about Vermeer that appealed to you? Vermeer is just unique. I mean, it's, it's hard to explain. I mean, you look at his contemporaries and they paint the same subject matter and you think, oh, these are, you know, you can see they're, they're, they're Dutch interiors of the age. And you look at a Vermeer and you, you don't think that. You're just so caught up, bewildered by uh, the formalities of the painting, by the light and the design and the composition. It just goes beyond being a, a, another Dutch interior. You don't even think of it as being Dutch. I don't. Yeah, I know what you, you know, mean. I, I don't, you know, it's, it's, it's like capturing a moment. Yes. You look at a De Hoog or Gabriel Metsu, one of his contemporaries, and it's like, this, this is a beautifully painted Dutch interior. You know, it's wonderful. But you look at Vermeer and it's the idea of being Dutch, to me, doesn't even come in. Obviously, he is. But just the way his composition, uh, the design, the light he gets... Mm. Um, mm, there's, definitely. A, there's a stillness and a beauty I, I, I think is unique in that mm. and, and did you 
was your love for Vermeer, did that come around when you went to Vienna and went in your early... No, earlier, much earlier than that, yeah. I had the opportunity in Vienna to um, copy from life his, his famous painting, The Artist in the Studio, mm. um, along with some other artists, um, and that was, uh, you know, wonderful. You know, I've got a feeling not many people were painting like this in those days in, in Australia. Uh, no, they weren't. They were even in Vienna. I mean, even when I painted the Vermeer, the because I was studying at an art school in Vienna, and and some of the students I was with didn't even know where this painting was. They said, "That's a beautiful painting. Where is it?" And I'd say, "It's it's two kilometres down the road." <laughs> this just sort of shocked me a bit. Ah, oh, so because it just wasn't in vogue at it the time. It just wasn't. No. No. Yeah, and I suppose people were sort of more into abstraction, the expressionists and that sort of thing in the 70s. Yes, yes, very much so. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the next painting, which really caught my eye, and that's your, the, the portrait of your grandmother called The Widow. The White Widow, yes. The White Widow. It's a very striking work, and I think it's mainly because she's, you know, she's basically in her, I would say, her 80s, yes. and she's dressed in a bridal gown. Yes. And she's sitting on a couch. She's wearing odd shoes one is a black leather shoe and on one foot and a a sheepskin slipper on the other it's such an interesting work can you tell me a little bit about it it's it's my my grandmother is what's known as as a white widow Um, she comes from a very small village in calabria in southern italy and she got married to my grandfather and they had a, a baby girl my mother and when my mother was uh just a few weeks old my grandfather came to australia and the idea was, you know, uh, this was common, the idea was he'd stay here for a few years, get some money and bring the family out. But he ended up staying in Australia. He was, he was a tailor in Woolloomooloo. He stayed here for 25 years. So they were separated for 25 years. Wow. Meanwhile, my mother grew up and she had two children of her own, my brother and my sister. And then my grandmother, after 25 years, she was a very strong woman. She was the, the sort of matriarch of the family. She was the firstborn. Uh, she came out and she worked for, as, you know, with my grandfather, got the money and brought the family out. And she's known as a white widow because if you think of a small village in Calabria in those days, it's like a, like a village in, in Afghanistan, like a Taliban village. You know, women really had no rights. She couldn't divorce. She couldn't get a lover or, you know, she was just very restricted. She just had to put up with that. It's not uncommon. I'm sure it's still mm. happening. Mm. Um, and, and because she was virtually a widow, uh, but not in real life a widow, she was like a, like a virtual widow or something. They, they called them white widows. And that's why I painted her in, in the wedding dress. Did she ever tell you, did she ever talk to you about that experience? Yeah, I never got to the bottom of it. You know, I, I, I think my, my grandfather, I think it was very hard to make a living. I think, you know, this is between the wars as well. You imagine Woolloomooloo in the... You know, what, what is this, the 40s and 50s, you know, it would, have been, it would have been very difficult to make a living. But I think some of the men just, I don't know what happened. I think sometimes they just deserted their families, quite honestly. Mm. I never got to the bottom of it because nobody wanted to speak. Mm. Oh, it was very common. I mean, I was telling you before, my, my grandfather came out before my father and my, how, from Greece. How long was he here for? Well, my father was seven or eight when he met him, so... So probably, so about seven or eight years, yeah. So, and that was, you know, after the war and, yeah, well, as you say, you know, setting my up brother here. and sister remember when my father, when they were about that age, uh, and my father came back from the war, you know, and, and suddenly there's this man just suddenly appears in your life, you know, and, and the men were so stressed out because of the war yeah. and they were so strict. It would have been, you know, terrifying for a child.
The thing that I find so striking about this work is this sort of juxtaposition of this, you know, um, wedding dress with that sort of casual couch, you know. So did you, you, and also the shoes. Look, I'm quite honestly, when I look at some of these paintings now, you know, from 30, 20 years ago, I I can see a lot of symbolism in it. I didn't actually design it. I'm I'm not conscious of symbolism when I actually create the painting. So I've always thought that can just sort of fall into a a, a sort of illustration of whatever you want to do. But um, I'm just wondering, looking at that couch now, and I'm seeing the birds, you know, I mean, I can see my grandmother's just been you know, caught in this, this sort of cage, really, in, in Italy, you know, being a white widow and really being restricted. And yet she's got birds, you know. I don't know if she's finally liberated now or... or yeah, the birds or, on the couch and the, the print on the yes, couch. Yes, just the freedom. And yeah, I, oh, and that's I'm, so interesting, isn't well, it? Well, I'm looking at the shoes now and I'm thinking that, you know, I remember I, I, I couldn't decide which shoes to paint, so I, I thought I'd paint one of each. But now when I'm looking at it, she did have this, this very strict um, sort of dual nature, you know, she was very loving, and, uh, and, but at the same time, she was very, very argumentative and bossy, you know, and, and she and my grandmother and my mother used to sort of argue every day, you know, it was one of those family secrets, but, um, you know, she was a, a very strong woman. She actually, in Italy, she, she got up in the middle of the night and went and stole her father's will and tore it up because she thought it was very unfair and gave the brothers too much. Really? Yes. What happened in the end? Did she get I, anything? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Not, <laughs> not that they had much to get, you know. Wow, that, yeah, so she's very strong-willed. Yeah, she did bring out her dowry. There's the blankets that I mentioned in Instagram, the, the, the blankets that they brought out, and I only found out recently that they were part of the dowry. They're in, I've painted the blankets a few times. Ah, oh, yes, I saw that on Instagram. Yeah, 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 that's so... Well, talking about those sort of props and things, like we're looking at Lee Lin Chin here, and these puppets and, well, dolls yes, and fabrics, yes. they do pop up in your works from time to yes, time. Yes, Well, they're just so beautiful to paint, you know, and they're expressive and they're sort of like almost, almost human. And I'm noticing the screen. I mean, in those days, I just used the screen as a backdrop, but later on, when... when there were times in the evening, late afternoon, when the light would come filtering through the screen and it would go onto a wall or would go into a still life. And I started to use, to paint that, use that, yeah. That's like your John Blackman portrait that that won the Percival portrait So it tended to break the form. You know, these paintings are very strong in form. I've really emphasized three-dimensional form. But when the light comes through the screen, it it breaks up the the form. You get this sort of scattering of light and particles. Yeah. It's a sort of melancholic feel to me when that happens. That's well, it's the it's the sunset. It's the passing sunsets. The sad, you know, because they're they're going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's so true. <laughs> and yeah. that light, that warm light, you know. So now we're coming into more of your recent works in this next section of the gallery. It looks amazing. They're mainly still life works here in this section. And they have a great serenity about them for me. Basically, most of these works have a a vase of flowers and other objects on a table, um, or several vases of flowers, in front of a window looking out to a garden outside, and and some with cats, birds, and dogs. And this is is from your home, isn't it? Yes, yes. The new works are are basically sort of, there's, there's two main themes, as you say, there's the still lives and the garden. And there's also a number of sort of Vermeerish-type genre paintings, mainly of my two daughters. Um, it's difficult to do a still life um, with, with the landscape because if you if you uh, sort of a, if you paint it 
realistically, which is what I do, you find you have a lot of problems with the tone because it's normally a still life against a, a window would be very, very dark, you know, and I've been playing with that and I've, I've actually brought out a lot of the colours of the still life while trying to keep the, the relatively dark tones. Mm. And I've, I find the landscape, it just, it just gives it that much um, extra, extra depth. And a lot of these have, um, I've, I've sort of made up, I've got a general idea now, I tend to make up, you can just have very broad areas of colour, I mean, such as, say, this, this painting or this one. This, the, the background is just suggested, you know, but still you can, you can see that it's that sort of window and there's mm. a landscape. Mm. And they're two and of the Jenny's Gardens, yes, Jenny's yes. Garden paintings. Yeah. I call them Jenny's Gardens because Jenny's my wife and this is basically her garden. <laughs> and I've painted that little sideboard um, off, you know, and there's the still life objects. Yeah, I just, I just love them. And I love in this, in this painting, Jenny's Garden 25, that we're looking at at the moment, it has that whole setup with the vases of flowers on a, on a table, a side table. Yes, like a side table. And, but the interesting thing with this one, which is in, in a few other ones as well, is this wonderful sort of bamboo-ish type screening yeah. in the background. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about that? Well, it's, as we are talking before about how light through the screen um, can actually, you know, you have a speckled effect and can, and can break an object up into pieces. I, I found that, that a bam if you see something like the, a landscape through the bamboo screen, it tends to make the, almost the, the landscape vibrate. It, it, it sort of gives it this, this other dimension. Mm. It's, you know, you, you sort of see it and then you don't see it. And as you say, I've, I've used it in a number of paintings. Do you find that you it's like an experimental thing with yes, your work? Yes, it's always experimental. It's just interesting how these things happen and how different things in your in your past join together. How you know things like the screen and you know as an object, and then and you know, it, how it breaks up objects when you see the light through the screen. And suddenly, I've just realised painting this, you know, using this bamboo curtain. Um, it's something that I'm going to sort of continue with because mm. I can use the bamboo curtain in front of of lots of things now. Well, it's interesting in this work as well, you've got an extra light source, which is that lamp, standing lamp yes. on the side. It's a sort of very bizarre sort of snake-like lamp. It, it sort of gives it a slightly menacing feel, I think, because you see the snake head up there. Yeah. Um, yes, and I've, I put this, the statuette, the African statuette in, in the foreground, and that gives it another sort of, you're playing more on the depth. Yes. Yeah. And, and I love including this, this, our old dog, Seely, who passed away a few years ago. You know, I mean, if you put an, an animal in a painting, it just gives it a sort of a bit of an extra dimension. I'm not sure why. It's just um, maybe there's some mythological evolutionary connection that we have with, with animals. Yeah. Well, and also, I suppose a domestic animal is so... We're so attached to those yeah. creatures, you know? Yes, yes. But also you've got, you know, another uh, painting here where you've got like it's Jenny's Garden 20, which is next to the one that we've been discussing, and it's got actually moving birds well, I, in it. I, yeah, well, I, I, I sometimes get a theme and I like to sort of stretch it and see how far the theme can go. And I wanted <laughs> to make this like, you know, a central still life with, with a lot of mayhem all around it. It's like there's a spiral of mayhem. You've got these sort of cats and you've got the dog there and you've got this bird, you know, which, which actually happens in the backyard. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They're like Rosellas. Colour, yes, very Rosellas and the and the, the the magpies that all the crow. Yeah, and yeah, and a butterfly. The crow and the butterfly. <laughs> yes. Oh, I um, love it. It is it is chaotic in a way. Well, it's it's a play on the still life because the still life in a, in Italian or you know is, is natura morta, which is dead nature. You know, it's odd translation, but that's how they say still life. 
and this is sort of gives it a it's got an animate object it's got you know animals in it so it's sort of alive dead nature yeah, it's fabulous. Well, let's move on to the to the next room, which contains a few more uh, paintings with figures in them, which I wanted to discuss. All right. So in this room, there are some magnificent paintings of um, still lives, but also uh, with figures with mainly your daughters who are quite musical themselves. Yes, they They're are right musical. into music. Yes. But yes. one of the works I wanted to talk about and zero in on is one called Balthus's Cats. It's a nude standing figure, which is reminiscent of a woman in a Balthus painting, and with two little cats. It's a lounge sort of area yes. with, a, with a couch, with windows and a shutter. But of course, it's got that beautiful light streaming in from the window onto the couch, onto the wall. Um, and there's this, I've got to say, the particular thing I love about this painting is that green carpet that has this flecks mm. of sort of reddish mm. colour in it. And I, I just, I really love this work. Can you tell me a bit about it? Well, I've always, Balthus is one of the you know, 20th century painters that I've, I've really loved. I think it's always good if you, if, you, if you love an artist or a painting or something, it's good to actually copy it and sort of get it out of your system, you know. And, you know, with the Vermeer, with the Renaissance artists and Balthus, you know, I did a series of paintings based on Balthus. Anyone who knows him will recognise the, the, the woman with the hair back. It was a common theme with him. And that's my lounge room at home in late afternoon when the light would come in. And... Technically, you know, I used to, if you, if you go up close, you can see there's a lot of this almost like pointless, this sort of speckled mm. um, technique. Mm. And, and I've realised that you, if, you, if you put on a colour in, in small amounts or, you know, the size of a, what, like an, an ant's head or something, it's, uh, you can put a very bright colour into a dark area. And if it's small, you know, it has an effect of just bringing it to life. And it gives you a texture and, a, you know, it's, it's the surface is a bit like facets of a diamond where light's sort of... Um, it's reflected off it. Mm. I remember you telling me in, when we were oh, in the yeah, inter- early yeah. interview about the, the school tie yes. story. Can you tell well, me? The school t- yeah, well, that's a very strong memory I have. I, I just remember it was primary school and I remember waking up and on the end of the bed there was hanging my school tie, which was a grey tie with, with yellow and blue um, diagonal stripes on it. And I just remember that as the light was morning light was coming into the bedroom, I was looking at the tie and it was sort of grey and everything was... Pixelated. It was like the whole atmosphere was just sort of like pixels everywhere, like diffused, slightly out of focus. And I was looking at the tie and then gradually as the light came in, the pixels started to sort of come in place and I could start to see the colours and the definition of the diagonal stripes more. I just had that very strong memory and I, and, I, and I think of, am I doing something like that? You know, am I trying to sort of pixelate everything and... and everything sort of merges it's, it's like everything comes from a gray it sort of comes in and out of a gray mm-hmm. and it does give as christopher allen said in, yes, in yes. that in in his piece on your work that it gives that dreamlike feeling and he talked he recently just reviewed the clarice beckett but he she painted sunset he said where well, something similar was happening in the as the sun sets gradually as the color as the sun sets and, and the light disappears the, the color sort of disappears and there's that point where it's just sort of magical point it's it's very strange yeah and i suppose you're dealing with tertiaries a lot with well that sort of tertiaries opposites i i, I just think there's all sorts of experiments the green carpet has got a lot of red in it. it's got a lot of blue in it even the black if you look closely it's got little red spots in it um, mm. 
Would you come back at the end and and both? Yeah, both. I sometimes like to work. I combine this with a glaze, where I'll have an underpainting and I'll have an underpainting in opposite colours, and I'll then work over it and then whatever moulds wet, I'll work into it with with texture. Mm. Um, sometimes I wait for it to dry and I'll just put a few specks here and there. Mm. Um, oh, some, sometimes they're, they're like little little specks, little dots, and sometimes with a palette knife I use strokes. Well, on that point of um, being enamoured of an artist and wanting to inject that into your own work, I noticed upstairs you've also got that Bondi Pavilion after Massolino. Yes, yes. And, um, and also well, the, self, the Rembrandt self-portrait, yes, <laughs> which yes. is in the window at the yes, front. Yes. I love that. Yeah. I know, and most artists, when they see that, will think straight away of yes, the Rembrandt yes, portrait. They know it's Rembrandt. You've encouraged, in the days when you were teaching, you encouraged your students to, to do yes, that. Yes, yes. So how would someone go about that? They would just take well, a work? Um, look, nowadays reproductions are really good, you know. But right throughout art history, people copied uh, the great masters. That was one way of learning. Even Degas recommended go to the Louvre and just copy the paintings. When I started teaching at Julian Ashton in, what, 25 years ago, I actually reintroduced painting at the art gallery. And I had a couple of terms. We went into the art gallery. We had to get special permission and we, uh, we did copies of, of the paintings, oil copies. That would have been fantastic. It was, it was great. They yeah. not do, and I don't think, do they do that now? I don't I'm know if sure. they allow it anymore. I, oh. I think under certain circumstances. We'll have to get that started again. Yeah, yes. <laughs> well, if somebody's, you know, well, you out, there, in Europe. out there wants to yeah. do it, maybe we can approach the In Europe the you see it, you come across an artist just sitting up. You yeah. know? And as I said, I painted, you know, in, in Vienna, the Kunsthistorisches, I painted the Vermeer. I also did some, some Velasquez and some Rembrandt copies. Um, it's, it's a way of looking, you know, and if you love something like that, you love art, you just want to know it and copying it is it's just a really good way of looking. Totally. Well, you know, when I see that, pu- that carpet, it reminds me, you know, you, obviously you probably weren't thinking of this, but do you know David Hockney's Mr. and Mrs. Per- Mrs. Mr. And Mrs. Clark and oh, Percy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it just reminds it like me of that, that carpet. But oh, it's right. not the same colour, but it's that swirliness. Yeah. Yes. And it's interesting, for, I think for artists, we're always seeing, seeing references to art history and sort of reminding us of different artists. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, what part of the joy of it. It, and, and also painting takes on a life of its own. You know, you, I'm a, a realist or painter, and, but I find that that's just it's a bit of an odd, odd sort of title to have because a lot of this I make up. I mean, the carpet, the floor, it is a carpet, but it's nothing like that, you know? Yeah, you just yeah. make it up so then you, you get more involved in the reality of, of the painting itself rather than, you know, the, the reality as mm. it is. And as you've said before, more an abstract way of looking at yes, it. Yes, it is. I think painting, I think it's the abstract quality in a, in a painting that makes it powerful, makes it strong. Yeah, I agree. You mentioned the Massolino. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to say something about that? Well, it's, there's a series of works that I did. I mean, I, lo- I love the Renaissance, especially the early Renaissance, because they painted, uh, the subject matter was so broad. They painted everything. If you think of, you know, still life, landscapes, they painted portraits, they painted people, they painted fantasy. Um, it was just so broad what they painted. And someone like, you know, I don't know, Piero or Della Francesca or Fra Angelico, Botticelli, even though they, they painted reality, they, they changed it, you know, they, they sort of idealised it in some way. Also, they, they had a very strong sense of geometry in their work. And a lot of those frescoes you see, part of the beauty is just 
almost comes down to a straight line and a curve. Um, it's just the, the balance between a, a, a curved shapes and between angular shapes. There's something really beautiful in that. Mm. So I don't know what it is. Well, but, you studied architecture know. when you first... Well, I know, but it's... Uh, yeah, I don't Do know. you think it's, that's influenced you at all? Uh, a little bit, a little bit. I think I had it before. I think it was just... I'm just, nat- just naturally drawn mm. um, to that sort of art, I think. That's why like an interior, like the Balthus, the interior is the perfect, it's, it's a figure ag- against walls and furniture and it's that balance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we have some sort of innate geometric sense in us, you know, when we respond to it. I don't know if everybody's got that though. <laughs> Maybe they're not aware of it. Well, it's things like the golden, you know, they talk about the golden mean and, you know, I did study all that, you know, sacred geometry, they call it, in, in art and architecture, but uh, I found it's just, we do it intuitively. I can give you an example, though, a very good example. Most portraits, even students do this, when you paint a portrait, you'll have one of the eyes in the vertical centre of the painting. It's, really? If I asked a student to do a portrait with a, the eye in the vertical centre of the painter, they probably couldn't do it. But you have a look, most most portraits they have that look, look, look like that one there. Look at ah, this one here. Ah, yes. This one there. You see how the eye's sort of in the vertical centre? Yes, you're right. Yeah. I know this because there was a computer study a few years ago and they fed all these famous portraits into a computer and said, what do they have in common? And they said, most of them have an eye in the vertical centre of the painting. Wow. And it's something that we do intuitively. It's like we have this innate, you know, geometric sense and we do that. It's very strange. Now, one of the fascinating things about these works in this area is that each of these paintings is accompanied by a QR code, which connects the viewer to a musical composition which Mm. you have made yourself. And and that refers to the title of the show. Can you tell me a little bit about the title and the background to to these QR codes? Well, the the exhibition, I, I, I called it Pictures at an Exhibition with Apologies to Mazowski. Um, you know, people who follow classical music will, will get some of the reference. Mazorsky was a very famous 19th century Russian composer and he had a, a close friend, Victor Hartmann, a painter who, had, who I think died tragically young. And Victor Hartmann had a, an exhibition and, and Mazorsky, um, he, he based each of the paintings of the exhibition on a, on a piece of music and he called it Pictures at an Exhibition. And, so the um, piano suite was it's, yeah, called it's, it's originally written for a piano. It's a piano suite, and there's a very famous orchestration by Maurice Ravel. It's one of those really well-known pieces. It's like Swan Lake or Beethoven Symphony. And I've always been a, an amateur composer. You know, as you know, right from the beginning, I've had music has been a sort of common theme, by the way, which is very common in, in, um, in Vermeer and Renaissance art as well. And... For the recent works, I've written a little piano piece based on each of the paintings, and, and you can access the, the, the music by scanning the QR codes in the catalogue. Mm-hmm. It's also next to the painting, and you'll hear a, a short piano piece. Just a little, it's like a little descriptive piece of music of the painting. So you composed the, the piece specifically for that for yes, that painting yes. oh that's yes. amazing Actually, i mean it's it's not a played by a piano it's a computer sort of well, generated I had, to, I had to i composed the music but i had to transfer it to a musical program uh, because then you have to transfer it to a, a what they call a midi file um otherwise people can't access it i don't really understand it technically but it's, yeah right yes so it doesn't have as much of light and shade as you would no no the, piece, is, the piece when you hear it it's, it's a very it's almost very mechanical the way it, it sounds um because I, I didn't have time to to edit it if you or to put in the nuances you know to, yeah. to give it some feeling you know stop start and loud and soft 
It gives a good, but if you listen to it, you get a good feeling for well, what it's you more, compose. Yeah, it's just something yeah. that I've, I've always done and I just wanted to sort of, you know, get it out there and let people know that I do compose. Um, and I, I just love the study of music. I, I find it fascinating. So if people come to the show, they're going to also see a good number of self-portraits. So that's something you've yes, been doing over yes. the years. Well, there was a period when I did a lot of self-portraits. Um, most of them are, are hanging upstairs. Um, and you'll see this. I, 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 I was surprised to see the variety in the self-portraits. It's not the same style. I've always, always experimented with different painting techniques. You know, I would change the colour of the background. I changed the colour of what I was wearing. Um, some of them are textured. Some of them are, are glazed. Some of them are combinations of, you know, um, I just find it very hard to find this, yeah. do the same painting over and over again. I suppose you've always got that subject matter at hand if ever you want to try something well, new. Well, we, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, I mean, we're, rather than getting a model, we're our own subject. <laughs> because I take it you don't, you wouldn't get much satisfaction out of painting from a photo. No, no. I started using photos at some point when I was doing portrait commissions because I found that people just, just wouldn't sit. You know, you go to art school, you get spoiled as a model there, but you know, when you're in the real world and you do a portrait, they don't sit. And I found that photos were help, helpful. I'd, I'd had the drawing and then I would use it. But I also find I, I use photos for ideas. I find you can get compositional ideas from photos and suddenly happen, you know, if you see a, a bird flying, fighting with a cat or something, you might be able to catch something of that. Yeah. It's yeah. very good for that. Yes, um, especially animals. Yes, I can see yeah. that. Yeah. Yes. Well, you know, another genre that um, you have that we, we can see here is landscape. And I absolutely love the very few oh, landscapes oh, right. that you've got up there, which I've weirdly, well, there's two of them are Rushcutters Bay. Yes. And I tell you what, I could swear it was the south of France. <laughs> <laughs> it just, I don't know, it reminded me of Cezanne well, for some reason. Well, one of them, well, one of them is, I call the, I think it was the bushfire scene. It was when we had, because, um, you know, I lived in Rushcutters Bay overlooking the park and there was a, one period where we had these really severe bushfires and during that period the sky goes all brown and there's actually a very beautiful light. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, you don't feel very bad because it's, it's, it's really tragic. It's really a beautiful light it, and it just picks up, um, you know, if, if you've got a darkened sky, it picks up the colour of, of, of the vegetation, of the green, of the trees. Mm. Um, you can see that when, when it's overcast and the sky is very dark and suddenly the, the trees look luminous, you know, they're glowing. That's so true. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yes. Well, and also, yeah, there's no blue sky in that painting. So No, well, that's, that's always, in fact, Brian Dunlop used to tell me, you know, the, the Australian blue sky is always really hard to paint. And I would suggest to, to students just to paint a little bit of sky or have a great cloud formation, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true, it isn't it? It's it a very bright blue. It is a bright blue. It's very hard, yes, yeah, hard mm. to paint. Um, Depending on what effect you want to get, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it might work for some styles of painting, but obviously not yours. But um, thank you so much, Frank, for joining me here today in this magnificent space at Australian Galleries. Everybody should come and see it. Whoever's in Sydney must come and see this show. It's wonderful seeing all these different periods of your uh, painting life in one space. Thank you, Maria. What a fabulous artist. I really enjoyed this exhibition. And just a reminder, if you want to keep updated with the podcast and YouTube channel, you can subscribe to the newsletter, which comes out about once a month. And there's a link to that in the show notes. Thanks for listening and hope you can join me for the next episode of Talking with Painters.